So I've got to, I, I'm probably going to alienate half the audience here. I, the thing I hate about compliance is not the concept, but it's the, it's the brand. Money makes a Big corporate errors often boil down to decisions made by individual people. When things go wrong in organizations, there is always a human component. People either cause problems or make them worse by how they react to them. Yet traditional approaches to compliance often do not think about behavioral drivers. Traditional approaches rather think about how we would like people to behave rather than how they're likely to behave. That's the theory behind Human Risk, a London-based compliance firm run by this week's The Laundry guest, Christian Hunt. Christian has over 25 years of experience in financial services, and he brings a unique perspective to the field of compliance, having both been a regulator with a subsidiary of the Bank of England and as a risk and compliance officer at UBS. Christian is passionate about helping companies encourage ethical and thoughtful behavior from their employees, even when under pressure. We were interested in digging further into this topic. Welcome to The Laundry, Christian. First off, what does human risk mean to you? So, well, human risk is the name of my company. So uh, obviously I'm fascinated by the subject. But when people say to me, what do you mean by human risk? I, I always explain that the definition I use for human risk is the risk of people doing things they shouldn't or not doing things they should. And you'll notice that's a really, really broad definition. It contains the word things. So it's, it's pretty vague, but that's deliberate because what I want to capture is everything around human decision making that might pose a problem. And that's everything from I'm, you know, I'm a bit tired and I've made a mistake through to I'm deliberately setting out to commit fraud. So what I'm looking at is the full range of the bad outcomes that can come from human decision making. And with your extensive background, what examples have you seen where human risk have gone terribly wrong? My favorite one was back from a few years ago, 2017. There's a guy called Brian Cullinan, who was a partner at PwC, who had responsibility, the Oscars, for handing out the envelopes. And you may remember that for the biggest award of the night, he handed out the wrong envelope and there was a complete chaos. And if you look at that, you just go, it's one small mistake uh, with, with huge, you know, on global television, he makes a big mistake. And it's embarrassing for the firm because they go around telling other people how to, to put controls in place. They audit other people. So there's this one small mistake caused by a guy who's got years of experience. And, and so I'm fascinated by that as an example. And it's a great example because it's, you know, nobody died. And there's lots of examples where people, where there's much more serious consequences. But it's a good illustration that even if you've got experience, you can make mistakes with huge consequences. And then we think about junior staff, lots of examples. We give junior staff more power to screw up than ever before because we give them keyboards and email addresses. And if you think about social media, particularly with the prevalence of video, you know, a small mistake by a junior person can go public very, very quickly. And the consequences of that are there. Absolutely. And I think like for, for businesses, this is where compliance comes in. Like basically trying to find a way for to, to have people in the company do as you wish them to do, to not screw up. But I've heard a few of your keynotes and, and a few of your presentations where you really basically say, I hate compliance or I hate <laughs> traditional compliance. So, so what grinds your gears about, about compliance? So I'm, gonna, I, I'm probably going to alienate half the audience here. I, the thing <laughs> I hate about compliance is not the concept, but it's the, it's the brand. 
right? It is the world's worst piece of branding. If you were trying to, if you were trying to give the impression that something was bureaucratic and dull and, and kind of authoritarian, right? You would use a word like compliance. And then you'd make it worse by adding the word officer to it, right? What? Like, it's the only example I can think of where the word officer makes it worse, right? Because it sounds it sounds like a bureaucratic function. And then we've got someone with a sort of military or police title to go with it. Not great. And I think that branding, like, it's, it's amusing to talk about it, but I think that branding really matters because... What we're trying to do in compliance is influence human decision-making, right? You can't say to an organization, be compliant, because buildings and logos and legal entities don't generally respond when you issue instructions. It's the people within the organization that will determine whether or not it's compliant. So when we think about compliance, we think about from an organizational perspective, here's the rules that we need to have the organization comply with. And so if we're in the business of engaging people, Right, of, of persuading them or telling them to do th certain things and not do others. We've started out really badly because we've got this hideous brand. And so, you know, the best illustration of that is anybody who receives an email that says compliance training or compliance update right, is turned off by the subject of the email, let alone what it says. And so for me, the, the reason I don't like compliance is not because I think that we can break the rules or because we shouldn't have the function, but like we are trying to influence people and yet we've got the world's worst brand with which we're trying to do it. And so we're starting off from a really, really challenging position. So when I when I go for the say, I don't like compliance, I don't, it's not the concept, it's the branding that's awful that's got the, the sort of, you know, it feels like it's gonna be a pain. It's like it's like the tax authority, right? Nobody likes talking to the tax authority. It's not a pleasurable experience. So why do we brand it in a way that's really off-putting? So besides the branding. What else is wrong with traditional compliance programs today, in your opinion? Well, <laughs> so, so if I take a good example, a you know, classic way that compliance approaches a new regulation is the regulation comes in, they read the regulation, they transcribe the regulation into a policy, they train people on the policy, and we build controls and communications and framework around that policy. Now, that's very logical from the perspective of compliance, because what you're doing is going, hey, well, look, we've done everything right here. We've taken the law, we've taken the regulation, we've transcribed it. And, and we stick as closely as we possibly can to that. And then we, we push that down onto the people. So we've done our job. But you, if you take that approach, you haven't, because what you've basically done is said to the people who are in the business, who, let's be honest, are not interested in compliance. And I don't mean I don't mean that they want to be lawless. I mean, if they were interested in compliance, right? They were passionate about reading rules and regulations. They'd be working in compliance, but they're not. They're, <laughs> they, they're interested in sales, or they're interested in whatever their job is. And we give them the sort of all this technical stuff that people don't need to know. They just need to know what is it you want me to do differently from what I would ordinarily do. And so that is a, a translation job that we need to do. And very often that gets missed. You think that if you've basically told people the genesis of a regulation, the de technical detail of it, where it comes, you know, we badge training based around the name of the rule. And if you think about the rest of our lives, the products that we use, that we enjoy using are the things where we don't have to read an instruction manual, right? The reason the iPhone is so successful is they've designed it around the end user, right? Compliance, I think, needs to be as close to that as possible, where we try and put things into people's hands so they don't even notice.
It just forms part. Doing the compliant thing is part of the natural flow. And so this is a translation service that requires us to understand you know, user experience, design, behavioral science, all these kinds of things that can take complex technical regulations and turn it into stuff that the average person can understand and we get the outcomes we're looking for. So it's a translation service rather than just a transcription service. Mm. You, you touched on the, on the topic of behavioral science here as well, where, where the ethics comes in and how cognitive biases comes in and so forth. And I understand this is a bit of a, a passion of yours as well in terms of then turning behavioral science into behavioral compliance. Tell us a little bit about the difference between standard compliance and behavioral <laughs> compliance, please. So I had a really interesting path, which is I was a regulator. And then I became a compliance officer, and it was in the same industry. And in fact, I ended up being a risk and compliance officer at UBS, and I'd spent most of my time as a regulator looking at UBS. In the UK, you can you can move between the regulator and regulatee. It's part of the, the, the dynamic that, that helps that flow. And so I ended up eating my own regulatory cooking. In other words, I was having to implement stuff that I, at the regulator, had imposed on the firm. And I was like, this isn't landing and I know where it's coming from, right? I understand the logic. And so I was like, how do we how do we solve this problem? Because I know what the regulation is trying to do. And, and of course, because it was me, it was like, that's perfectly valid. And then I see on the ground, I'm like, well, this, like I'm, I, I'm being sent on training courses by myself that I don't find particularly engaging. I'm having to read policy. Like what is going on here? And so I start to realize that compliance is the business of influencing human decision-making. And so I just think, well, if we're in the business of influencing human decision-making, then why don't we do what other people that are really good at that do? And so I started to look at who's good at communicating with people. And the answer is advertisers, transport authorities are good at this. Governments are even sometimes good at this. And I thought, well, we're doing the same thing just in a different context. So how can, we, how can I get better at that? And, and the answer is behavioral science, which is the study of human decision-making. And so what I started to think was, well, if we're trying to communicate stuff to people and trying to design things that get them to behave in a particular way, why don't we borrow from that context? And so behavioral science, which is the, the, the study, gives you lots of clues about things that you can use to get the outcomes that you're looking for. So if I go on a training course and I'm told the company does things this way, so induction training, good example. Right, we get told about how the company behaves. If I then leave that induction training and I see that everybody else is behaving in a completely different way, I don't care what the induction, I'm going to go with what everybody else is doing. And so that's where culture becomes important. And so if we start to recognize the influence other people can have, we can start to say, okay, we can't just look at compliance as a trainer. You know, if I train someone in a classroom or online, I've done the job. I have to recognize that they are going to take cues from other things. Now, if I know that, I can start to play with that quite cleverly and use that not as something that's going to go against my program, but I can work with it. I can do campaigns that use what they call social proof, that the idea that if lots of other people are doing something, it must be a good thing to do. I can lever that in my communications, in my training, and I can be aware of it as a risk that's posed to my compliance program. And so for me, this study of things that are used in other contexts isn't just something that's sort of slightly useful. It's exactly what compliance should be about. So my whole mission is to say to people, if you wanna be good at compliance, you need to have a really good understanding of behavioral science because that's the job that you're there is to try and influence other people. And so what I'm here to do is to help people to say, okay, this is why behavioral science is important. And then here's the basic skills that you need, the kind of grounding that will make your program that much more effective. 
Do you have any examples of, or maybe you were able to do this at UBS, implement a behavioral compliance and really have an example where this changed people's attitude and actual actions toward a compliance program? So one of the things that we commonly do when we think about compliance is we say, okay, right, here's the outcome I don't want to have happen. I'm going to communicate to people what it is I don't want them to do. But what's really interesting is that in doing that, right, and we all know this intuitively, in doing that, you put ideas into people's heads. So, so here's a really simple example. Lots of people do this. Okay, so like imagine I've got a bit of training that I need people to do. And what we then tend to do is we go, okay, so what we now do is we're going to chase all the people that haven't yet done it. So we send an email to every single person that hasn't done it saying, you haven't done this, this is bad, you must do it. Right? So slightly threatening email that goes, you must do this. So either just before the deadline, which is annoying, right? Because if, 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 if I've still got time to do this, I haven't missed the deadline. And yet we still, if you haven't done it, you know, give you 30 days. If you haven't done it on day 29, I'm going to send you a threatening reminder, right? Well, that's terrible because you've given me 30 days, right? I'm, I'm just as compliant if I do it at 11.59 on the 30th day or the 29th day as I am if I do it the moment I get the email. So we sometimes do that. But what we do is we send the email to all the people that haven't. So let's imagine we've missed the deadline. Here's a load of people. We need to get them to do this. We send an email to those people and we say, you haven't done this. This is terrible. You're in breach, blah, 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 blah. If we can see all of the other people to whom the email has been sent, right? So it's in the to field rather than the BCC. I'm aware that I'm not the only person. And so far from feeling bad about it, I'm like, hey, there's a gang of us that have not done this. <laughs> that doesn't encourage me to do it. It actually makes it worse because I just relax because it doesn't feel like it's just me. It feels like I'm in. And if you look at that list of people, you can see, oh, look, there's a few senior people on that list. Right. And then you go, well, that's even better. Right. Because there's some senior people doing this. This is part of I'm part of a gang. And so we very often highlight things that we shouldn't be highlighting. We shouldn't be sharing the fact that lots of people haven't done something because that makes me feel better about it than if I thought I was the only one. And so what we're doing is we, I have no idea how many other people haven't done the training because I can't see that, but suddenly you've told me that. So you've given me information that allows me to see that non-compliance is prevalent. And so there's an example of, of it happening too late, but we also do it with things like surveys. You know, we'll try and encourage people to complete the survey. We'll send an email around saying 40% of you have completed the survey. If you're going to use percentages to encourage, you need to make sure it's like 80 or 90%. So the vast majority have done it. Otherwise, you're sending a signal that they haven't. And so there's a really, really simple example that we use in lots of contexts where we just make things worse. Right? The idea of the email communication isn't to put people off. It's to get them to do it. But actually, you've just given them a data point that makes it worse. And so really simple example, lots of illustrations of it in action. Stop doing that and you will improve things immediately. Do you have any examples more specifically related to KYC or AML or in, within banks or financial institutions that you could share? So I understand completely the logic of having KYC and AML, right? I get it from a societal perspective. I understand why firms put a lot of effort in. And so you know, when I look at behavioral science thing, I think often we compliance processes are designed to feel really, they, they should be slick, but they often feel really clunky and really kind of intrusive. And so to my mind, what, one of the things I'd say to people is if you are running a compliance process and, and you know, KYC, it, yes, it does slow things down deliberately and it needs to go, th you various steps to go through. 
But does that fit beautifully within the rest of your customer service property? There is no point in being a really, really slick company that provides a very sophisticated service that's client-focused if your compliance process isn't client-focused. If your compliance process feels really clunky, and I get that sometimes you want to make sure people know that it's there, right? Let's, it's a bit like airport security. We create airport security. We slow people down. It's deliberately not as efficient as it could be because we want to send a signal to people that might want to be doing bad things or to the, the, the you know, this is not as easy as it looks. And to passengers, look, you've gone through a process so you can feel safe flying. So there is a little bit of deliberate friction that's there. But what we see in a lot of compliance processes is there's too, way too much friction, right? It, it's horrible. And here's why that matters from an internal perspective. If your compliance process feels horrible and the rest of your business is focused on slick customer processes, the message you send to people internally is, this is not aligned with the rest of our business. Compliance feels like an add-on. And that means that whenever anybody comes across a compliance, they're like, oh, compliance is painful. It doesn't belong in this world. It's an alien thing. And so I'm going to get through that alien thing as quickly as possible. I am not going to take it seriously because these people don't understand our business. And so that's where I would look at an external process and say, a clunky external process sends that feels at odds with the rest of what the business is doing, sends a signal to everyone internally, this is not part of what we do. We should be trying to make it integral to part of the business. You mentioned that the, one of the key tools would be to stop sharing basically information that would help people not be compliant. You mentioned the 40% versus the, yep. uh, you need to show that the vast majority are actually being compliant to inspire other people to be compliant as well. Just finally, what other tools would you suggest or a compliance officer or anybody setting up a modern day compliance program that actually integrates a few of these behavioral science aspects into a program. What other tools would you recommend them? So, so, so the most important thing, number one thing, is you have to think about things from the perspective of the person you're trying to influence. Okay, so what we often don't do is we don't think about what is this like for the average employee, the employee that has to go through this experience. We go, ah, well, because I'm compliance, right? My job is to make sure that people do this. And so they have to do my training. They must comply with this rule. And we don't think about the fact that, well, will they enjoy it? We don't care, right? That I'm, I'm allowed to do this because they're an employee and the employment contract says we can tell them what to do. And my point isn't that we should make life as easy as possible for employees and that they don't have to worry about the rules and that, you know, if they, if they don't like a particular rule, well, that's we'll just have to live with that. My point is the opposite, is to say we need to think about things and say to ourselves, not design things for the way we would like people to think and behave, but think about the way they are likely to behave. What we need to do is be thinking about it. What is this experience like? So don't send training emails to people on the 24th of December just before they go off, right? No, or, or on a Friday afternoon, right? There is a big difference between an email that I received asking me to do something that I may not enjoy, you know, on a, on a Monday morning maybe than, than there is on a Friday afternoon, right? I'm in a different frame of mind. They have to do certain things. But you can change the way that experience feels, right? We have all been through processes that we thought were going to be boring, but actually were cool. You know, school, really good example. You've got teachers that are teaching subjects that are a little bit boring who make it really interesting. And you've got teachers who have subjects that are really cool who make it really boring. So there's a simple, so let's be like those teachers that enthused kids that made it interesting and exciting. And you can take very boring and tedious things and make people interested in them if you frame it in the right way. 
That requires effort, and that's effort that we often don't put in. But if you really want to get the outcomes, that's what you need to do. And so I would look at put a customer service lens on and go, I know that I could make this process bureaucratic and tedious, but I'm not going to do that because I want people to take this seriously. I want people to engage it. The problem with that is that the more time you spend looking at a process, right, the more of an expert you are, there's something called the curse of knowledge that makes it harder for us to put ourselves in a position of somebody that doesn't know that. So we understand why you have to do a particular compliance process. It doesn't occur to us to explain to them why that might be or to think about it from the perspective of someone that's never seen this before, doesn't understand the logic behind it. How do we engage those people? So we have to get into the mindset of our employees to think about it from their perspective. That's the number one thing. With those final words, I think yeah, we're going to wrap it up. I appreciate you joining the podcast, Christian. Thank you for having me. This is a f***ing scam. Anybody who does this has stolen money. You wouldn't spend money you worked for like that. That's what Jordan Belford, aka the Wolf of Wall Street, said when production company Red Granite, backed by 1MDB, flew him and Kanye West to Cannes to plan a promotional party worth $3 million dollars for his upcoming biographical film. It turns out it was 100% correct. Welcome back to How Criminals Launder Money. Let's go through how the Malaysian people were victims of one of the world's biggest scandals, the 1MDB scandal. Now let's take a step back. What is 1MDB? That's the name of the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, One Malaysia Development Budhud. It's an investment fund that manages the savings belonging to the state and invest in various vehicles, including shares, bonds, real estate, etc. The money at stake is the Malaysian people's money. So what happened exactly? Well, about $1.5 billion from the fund was diverted to enrich the fund's directors, businessmen close to the government, Emirati officials, and even the former Malaysian Prime Minister himself, Najib Razak. All of them denied it, including one of the most embellic figures of the scandal, Joe Lowe, a powerful Malaysian businessman who allegedly embezzled a large part of the funds of 1MDB, of which he was an advisor to. Let's learn a bit more about this gentleman. Joe Lowe, whose real name is Lowe Taekyo, loves glitter, luxury and people. He's the son of a Malaysian bourgeois. His family fortune goes back to his grandfather, who invested in alcohol refineries and mines in Thailand. His father continued to invest in real estate in Malaysia, Hong Kong and Thailand. During his studies, he rubbed shoulders with the children of billionaires, especially the golden offspring of the wealthy in the Gulf and the nephew of former Malaysian Prime Minister, who is suspected of being his accomplice in this scandal. The trouble started in 2016 for the jet setter suspected of money laundering. Interpol issued a notice to locate him as a part of an investigation related to 1MDB financial flows. Several countries became involved in the investigation, such as Switzerland, the US, Singapore and Malaysia. To be honest, his outrageous spending was hard not to notice. The construction of a $250 million superyacht, spending more than $200 million on artwork, including paintings by Basquiat, Van Gogh and Monet. Staggering gifts to friends, including a Picasso to Leonardo DiCaprio. Gigantic parties with celebrities like De Niro and Paris Hilton, in places like Las Vegas, Saint-Tropez, etc. He's currently hiding in China and he faces 40 years in prison. 
thanks for watching this week's How Criminals Launder Money. Next week, we'll be taking a deep dive into the art market and how money is laundered here. Make sure to follow us to keep updated on the episodes. See you then. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Laundry Podcast. For more content, please subscribe to our LinkedIn or YouTube channel and stay tuned for another episode next week.